in Genesis, we've been preaching through the, the first, three, first three chapters of Genesis. And it's been quite interesting so far. And for those of you that haven't heard it, it's on the podcast. Go and listen. It's really good. And so today we come to probably the saddest point in the book of Genesis, I, I would say. We're in Genesis 3, 6, to 7, 6 and 7, if you want to look it up. And when it comes to the book of Genesis, we, we debate quite often, don't we, over the book of Genesis. What does this mean? And did God use six literal days to make the world? And, and, uh, and you know, who, who are Adam and Eve? Where are other people? And we debate all these issues about Genesis. And I think sometimes we get lost in the debate about Genesis. We get lost in... In, in all these arguments about how it happened, how it didn't happen, how it might have happened. And we get lost in all of that. And we kind of miss the point of what Genesis is about. See, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. The Bible, as a collection of books, is written about God redeeming his people, the people's creation, their fall, which we're going to look at today, and then their redemption through Jesus and then into eternity where we are redeemed forever with Jesus. And you can believe any of you on Genesis and get that story. But I just want to leave them out the window. Maybe I shouldn't have even brought it up because now we're all thinking. But I'm going to leave that aside and just look at the text as, as it stands within the context of God's big story because that's what the Bible is. It's God's big story. And I believe one of the most important verses, and someone's preached on this already, I won't go into it in too much detail, but I think Keith preached on this. Genesis 1.27, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So the story of Genesis, the story of the Bible, is the story of God creating human beings to be in his image with dignity, with relationship with him, and every single person, whether we like them or hate them, are made in God's image. Donald Trump is made in the image of God. Theresa May is made in the image of God. Jeremy Corbyn is made in the image of God. The person you work with who you don't like is made in the image of God. The person you work with who you do like is made in the image of God. Everybody is made in God's image. Made to know him, to be like him, to show him, to worship him. Anyway, go listen to whoever preached on that. Was it you, Keith? I think it was. So go and listen to Keith's sermon on that. I won't go into any more detail, but that's a really important verse. And then we come to, I think, the other important verse in Genesis, which is linked to us being made in God's image. That's what we're going to look at today. Genesis 3, 6 and 7. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it and ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So Adam, the human, the perfect man, that's actually the name Adam actually means human being in Hebrew. And Eve, whose name actually means mother, the mother of us all. They're like naughty children, you know, my daughter, she's only 10 months, 11 months, nearly a year. 
and already she's got a naughty streak. And we see it in children, don't we? They, they, they say no before they say yes. They do what they shouldn't do before they do what they should do. And she's got a naughty streak. And like naughty children, Adam and Eve do what God tells them not to do. Don't eat that fruit. You can have all the other fruits. You can have everything else in the garden, just not that fruit. So they go for the one they can't have. And the result, the saddest bit of the Bible, all of us now live separated from God. Spiritual death enters the world, catastrophic destruction, God's relationship with man, damaged, not just damaged, we're separated from close relationship with God, God's relationship with each other, man's relationship with each other, because they sinned against God. And notice, by the way, we often blame the woman, don't we? But Eve made Adam eat the fruit. Adam had heard God say, don't eat it. Eve had only heard it off Adam. So we have to be careful when we blame the woman for causing sin. And I've heard that a lot. You may have heard it too. And that's affected women ever since, I think. No, Adam listened to his wife. He should have known better because God had told him clearly what to do and what not to do. But they were both guilty. They were responsible for their sin. And immediately they see the results of their failure. It says they saw that they were naked. And there's more to that word than just physically not wearing clothes. It's used in the Old Testament through the prophets and places to describe um, our nakedness before God, our um, shame before God in sin. And when Israel sins against God, they're often said that they are naked. And so, Adam and Eve, first human beings, are naked, ashamed, separated from their relationship with God. Their sin's no longer hidden. They wanted wisdom. If you take the fruit off the tree, you'll be wise, said the snake. And that's what Dave was talking about last week. They got wisdom. They got knowledge. just wasn't the knowledge they were looking for. They wanted to be like God, but they realized that they were naked. Unable to see God. Unable to have a relationship with him. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, in Adam, all die. In Adam, all die. Because of the sin of Adam, our father, our head, all of us are now born in sin. And so the image bearers are now marred in their image. And we see it, don't we, in the world today. We have no relationship with our creator. And we see it in relationships between people. There's war and there's death and there's terrorism. And we see it in human beings' relationship with each other. I want to challenge you, if you go to Chester Zoo another time, to look at the boards that say animals are extinct or in danger in the wild. And it's always because of humans. So our relationship with each other, but also our relationship with the world around us is fallen because of human sin because of Adam and Eve and their choice to disobey God. And in 
choice we all make anyway, isn't it? We all make that choice ourselves as well. We all make that choice to live for ourselves and not for God. And the people who walk and talk with God in the garden now cannot see their creator. Throughout the Old Testament, you get this idea of they can't look on the face of God and live. Have you seen that? Moses had to hide his face. Elijah, other people, they had to hide their face. They couldn't look on the face of God and live because he's holy and they're not. So a dead, enslaved to sin. Humans made to be like God, separated from him. And that's a bit of a downer. It's a bit of a negative bit of the story, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it's, it's, not, it's not the pleasant bit that we like to hear. But here's the mind-blowing part of the story. John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Take that in, in light of the fact that we have sinned against God, the image bearers no longer have a relationship with God. God himself, the second person of the Trinity, comes to earth as a human being. The one who made God in his image becomes the image of man. He becomes human in order to, well, we'll go in order to what? Most of us know this already. But in order to make us right with God, ultimately. And the Christmas carol, my favourite Christmas carol, Heart the Herald Angels Sing, Here in flesh, railed in flesh, the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity, Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, God with us. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Those words can't be any bigger, any more important. I can say them again and again and again. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. God himself. Who we infinitely offended by our sin. Dwelt among us. Jesus. And Paul calls Jesus the second Adam. He's the perfect human. He's the, the man that Adam should have been. What Adam did to separate us from God, Jesus comes to do to take the punishment for and redeem us back to God. He lived as a fully human person. Jesus is not partly human, he's human and God. And Jesus went through a temptation like Adam did, didn't he? Jesus goes into the wilderness and the devil comes to him and says, if you do this, this and this, I'll give you this, this and this. There's three temptations and I won't go into them all, but we see this situation where Jesus is tempted as a human being in the desert. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't fail in his temptation. He doesn't give in in his temptation, like Adam did. But he, he resists the devil and continues to walk as a perfect, sinless human being. So that 
disobedience, that fall that's brought sin upon all humanity, can be reversed, dealt with. And God himself would choose to come and do that. He would choose to come himself and do that for us. God doesn't need to come from heaven. He doesn't need, he doesn't have to, rather, deal with our sin. He doesn't have to do anything for us. He would be in his right to stay in heaven and say, you've sinned against me, that's the end of it. But he chooses to come. Is that not amazing? I think it is. That God would choose to come and deal with our sin. And the earlier verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, that said, in Adam all die. Well, the whole verse is, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. The sin of Adam and Eve permeates everything. And only, this is the interesting thing, Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away our sin. Only a human sacrifice for our sin can take away human sin. And so Jesus dies. Jesus dies to pay the price for our sin. I don't know how many of you have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's, it's, an, it's a, what's the word? Allegory of, of the Christian, of the gospel. And Aslan is representative of Jesus, and the white witch in the story is the representative of the devil. And C.S. Lewis writes this really wonderful bit in, in Narnia, in, in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which kind of expresses this, this reality of sin and death and salvation and and a sacrifice. Basically, one of the characters, a boy called Edmund, he sins against, well, against his brothers and sisters who came to Narnia with him, and against Narnia itself, I suppose, as well. He, um, he sins, basically, and he goes with the white witch, and he does her bidding, all because he wants... Now, what was it she offered him? Who knows Narnia? What She offers him... Turkish delight, yeah. That's it. I'm just going to get a drink. But she offers him Turkish delight. Now, I don't know why anyone would do anything for Turkish delight, but that's another story. But, uh, Mars bar, maybe. But, uh, but, but she offers him Turkish delight. And he does what she says, because he wants this Turkish delight. And, and, and essentially, he, he works against his brothers and sisters, his brother and his two sisters, and against Narnia. And it essentially means that the witch has now got Edmund's life. Um, that he is now hers because he's done what she wanted, essentially. Um, so then, so Aslan comes. Aslan's a lion. He's the sort of the lord of Narnia, and he represents Jesus. And he comes, and he offers to take Edmund's place to be punished instead of Edmund. So that's what he does. He dies, Aslan dies, on the stone table. But then Aslan comes back and rises from the dead, and everyone's surprised that Aslan's back. Um, Because they weren't expecting him to be there, but Aslan is now dead. 
And then Aslan gives this quote about magic. There's this thing called deep magic and deeper magic, and it's, it's, uh, it's all to do with how Narnia works. And, uh, and Aslan says, though the witch knew the deep magic, that was the idea that one person has to take, the, that, that a person who is guilty has to be punished for their guilt, essentially. Um, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that while a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start to work backwards. And so Aslan says there's something deeper than this law that if you break the law, you are punished for it. There's a deeper law, which is when somebody offers themselves in your place, when a willing, perfect victim offers themselves instead of the traitor, death is reversed, curse is reversed, is paid for, is dealt with. And that is essential. And C.S. Lewis did that on purpose. That, that, that's obvious. Uh, C.S. Lewis was uniting that as an analogy for the gospel. But this God, this man who becomes flesh, Jesus does that. Everything that Adam and Eve did to bring sin into the world, Jesus reverses in our place. And he gets victory over sin and death and hell when he rises again. And each one of us First he comes to Israel, God's people, and then he comes, then he sends out his disciples and says, go into the world and preach the gospel to all people. Sin is paid for. Death is defeated. Jesus has won. Satan is defeated. We are saved. That's amazing because that's the final word in the in the Bible is not the story of Adam and Eve eating the fruit, but Jesus. So in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, Paul says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The devil, basically. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following, the desire, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but God, because of his great love for us, God, because of his great love for us, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not from yourselves. This is not from yourselves. This is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which he prepared for us in advance. Jesus has made us a new creation. The old creation fell in sin, but through Christ and through faith in him, we are made a new creation. Each one of us is a new creation who knows Jesus. And through faith in Jesus, the second Adam, we are made alive, redeemed, and we can experience the incomparable riches of his grace by which we are saved. And that's now, and that's for all eternity. It doesn't start when you go to heaven, it starts when you put your faith in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? There's been a creation, and now there's a new creation. And the new creation won't fail into sin like the old one. We, we sort of cross over with the old creation because we live in this world. And so, God's new creation is born through Jesus in us. We are made new. But God's plan is to restore all of creation with us. The whole of this world. And make it new. I suppose, in a sense, make it like it was before, make it like the old. We knew it. And so, Revelation 22, 1 to 5. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle streets of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of it's 12 crops of fruit in the new heaven and the new earth and we can eat it freely and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations no longer will there be any curse the curse is gone the throne of, the, of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads there will be no more night they will not need a lamp the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, remember what I said, sin said we, sin means we can't know God and see his face. In the new Jerusalem, when Jesus restores everything fully, we will see his face. We will see his face. Adam and Eve hid from the face of God. We will see his face face. No more curse, no more sin, no more pain, no more sickness. None of it, none of it, gone. A new Garden of Eden, which is also a city, where we access the Tree of Life. And we have access, full access, into the presence of God. Which we have now, of course, but unhindered, no sin. And we will be perfectly restored in our relationship to God. But God did not leave us, though he would have been within his rights to do so. He does not leave us, but he gives us back relationship with him because of Jesus. Wouldn't it be great on that day when we will see his face? 
and everything that's going to make heaven wonderful, how beautiful it will be, and, and the people will be there that will know the most beautiful thing about heaven is we will see his face. We will know him as we are known, Paul says. Now we see through a glass darkly, then we will see as he sees us, or something like that. That's a bit of a paraphrase. We will see him. And that's why we praise him and love him and know him and want to be closer to him. But that's another thing for another time, maybe. I just want to pray for us today. I think Rosie's around somewhere. The band are going to come up and we're going to sing. Um, would you stand with me if you can? Um, thank you. Just want us to quickly pray together. If there's anyone in the room who doesn't know Jesus, I would invite you to come and speak to someone, myself or someone else at the end. I don't know. I don't know. I think I'd probably know everybody in this room, but you never know. So I put that out there. If you have not come to know Jesus and seen that forgiveness in your life, then please come. We can speak to you and pray with you. But I really want to pray all of us to pray today and just thank God. And, uh, and maybe just think as we pray and worship at the end of the people that you know that, that don't know Jesus yet and the, the hope that they can have in Christ. Um, let's, just, uh, let's just lift up our prayers to God for a minute. I'll just pray for you. Thank you, Lord. We just praise you today, Jesus. We thank you that you do not leave us in our sin. You don't leave us dead. You don't leave us separated from you, but you have restored our relationship with you through the death and resurrection and the perfect life of Jesus. And we pray today that you will work in our hearts again to praise you. Give us praise for your name that you would choose to save us. Fill us with your spirit. Fill our hearts with thankfulness for what you've done for us. And I pray for everybody in this room all the people they know that don't know Jesus, who haven't found that hope yet, just give us the ability to, to show them Jesus in whatever way that, that works in our lives, through conversations or, through, or just through loving them or whatever. You know what works best. We pray for all those people we, don't know, who we know who don't know you. And we do pray that you give them life in Christ today. Thank you for your love, Lord. Amen. Amen. Mm-hmm.